Hi, this is Brennan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Robert Conley, Nick Seidler, and Adam Balderstone for another episode of RPG Lab. We're going to be talking about world building today. Um, you know, it's a it, obviously it's a very uh, central component of of RPGs, and I think we all have uh, pretty long experience with it. So we're going to just keep this conversation fairly casual, but we also have some practical things that we want to talk about as well uh related to things that have happened at our table uh so i don't know what who wants to start just uh, maybe offering up uh a, an explanation of what you consider world building to be and then we can go from there uh, well i think i got one basically um for me the point of, of, of why i do this is to play a campaign and every campaign has a setting you know, whether it's uh, the Mar- the Barsoom of John Carter, uh, Middle Earth, uh, or your own original creation, like Gygax did with Greyhawk, and uh, Dave Aronson did with Blackmore, and I, you know, or some people, you know, kick bash a couple things, like I did with my own Majestic Waterlands, which is a combination of uh, Judges Guild, Waterlands of High Fantasy, and my own ideas. But Every campaign needs a place where their characters live. So there's a setting. doesn't have to be in a great amount of detail, but if you're interested in that, sometimes it is. But but for many people, it's a daunting task because the setting literally can be an entire planet with with billions of people all living their imaginary lives. And uh, so it can be pretty tough place to start figure out where do i need to start and so well, that, well, what do you think is a good place to start where where would you well what, what you want to what you want to do is uh you, you should have the players generate you know get an idea of what characters they want to play and then just focus on the details that are local to them and any high level detail uh that uh they need to know. For example, if you're playing a bunch of superheroes and you decided, hey, I'm going to play a bunch of superheroes in, say, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, well, your world building is they need to, to know, say, say it's like a, you decided this is a, a, a United States where superheroes have been around for a while. So, not exactly like our own United States. So, the first thing you got to do is give that, you know, just about a paragraph worth of information, decide, tell them the history of the United States where, you know, focusing on more different, different, i.e. the fact that they're a superhero, that they come up during the uh, World War II, that they first emerged during the Atomic Age, or was it slightly later, and then, but, you know, spend about a paragraph on that, and then spend a paragraph on how they affect, you know, Pennsylvania in the local Harrisburg region and then maybe another paragraph on what Harrisburg is like and there you're going to do a lot of real world real world research about you know what's in Harrisburg and stuff and then the last uh, couple paragraph two or three should be focused on who the players know their neighborhood what their jobs are and stuff like that and uh, you're probably going to do it in two phases you're going to give them the overview in the first part in the first phase, all the way up down to this is Harrisburg, and then they're going to make their character in a lot of detail. 
uh, you know, they're going to give you a rough sketch and then, then they need the background to decide what, hey, this is what my guy's actually going to be like. And then the next step, then after they make their character, then you can give them all the details, like their sidekicks, their dependents, if you're going that route, you know, who do they know, who's their contacts, and all the local particular details. And by focusing, but the ultimate is your most amount of work is going to be in the player's immediate social circle and things they hear about, i.e. the things in Harrisburg, not yeah. in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or Los Angeles. That, unless it's a very important event, say like Los Angeles gets wiped by a meteor strike and, and that's when superheroes start uh, appearing, that would be a sentence or two in in your background. Yes. But that way you don't have to be overwhelmed by creating an entire world at once. Yeah, and you, you would mention research in there. I know that, that was because it was a real-world example, but even in fantasy worlds, there's research, obviously, sometimes. So uh, how, how much research do you guys generally find yourselves doing when you're world-building? Um... Uh, I'll chime in really quickly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> kind of. Sorry, it, yeah, this is Nick. And, and so, like, there are different levels of, of research that you might do in world building. Um, and so I play a lot of science fiction games. So when, when I try to do some research in, in, in science fiction games, you're landing on alternate planets, right? So you have the advantage of science, right, to, to help you out. And so if we're landing on different planets, I like to go to, like, the NASA website, or I like to go to, uh, before the podcast started, we were having a conversation about how sometimes we use Wikipedia or other resources uh, to go online and find out information. If, if we're setting something in a location that actually exists, doing research ahead of time is a very easy thing to do, thank you to the internet, mm -hmm. where we can go and find out what things exist in a given town, if we're dealing with a real city that exists. But even if we're completely making something up or if we're setting something in a fantasy setting, we're fortunate enough to have resources that we can look up some things. So even if you know nothing about what you know medieval culture would have been like, you can f go online and find out, like, oh, what are maybe the ten occupations that most people had during the Middle Ages? And then you realize that if you're going to fill your city with that you better have a blacksmith you better you know you better have a bunch of farmers you better have uh you know someone who does medicinal things even if that wasn't complicated like we would consider a doctor now uh you know you probably have a, a teacher and all like all those different kind of roles so so i myself actually spend i would say a moderate time amount of time doing some research i don't think that anybody should ever get bogged down with a hundred percent reality unless that is very important to your plot but i think you should kind of make sure that you have kind of an okay feel and an understanding of what's real um clearly if your plot requires something to be exactly correct you're setting your your story in in medieval jerusalem during the crusades and just because of the setting you don't want to get anything right or maybe there's some cultural reasons you want to make sure that you're accurate about the things then I might do more research. But other than that, I keep it pretty pretty vague, but, you know, decently researched. How do you guys feel? 
I research on my end. I I like research from the standpoint that my biggest barrier to, to world building or even adventure creation is just I hate having the blank page. It's like I, I the best way to get past that is to get information. Once you start finding information, stuff just kind of flows. It's like whether it's whether it's research. I mean, because research. It can be real-world research, but you can also get a lot of research out of just reading, you know, fantasy books, science fiction books, or even even gaming books, even. It's like you just kind of... I, I like to gather as much information as I can when I'm putting a campaign together, and I, I grab lots and bits. Of, every, every time I see a piece that I like, I add that to my notes, and the world kind of comes together out of the pieces I take from all these different sources. Yeah, the thing the thing that I would caution people about, you know, uh, doing re- using real world sources for research is that they're frustrating, incomplete. Yes, yes, <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> because most of the uh, there are very few uh, non gaming books that have the good stuff because they're usually they're written with a, an entirely different purpose than trying let having some poor game master who doesn't have a whole lot of time on their hands to, to find that one nugget information. But literally, I have read 200-page books and found the, there was just one key yes. sentence, and yes. that was the key sentence I was looking for to, to back up my historical. So, which is why I recommend that you're if you are pressed for time and you don't really, you want some historical uh I can't pronounce it. Verisimilitude? Is that? Verisimilitude, I, right. I think, is the. Yeah, verisimilitude. If you want that, there are several very good gaming, uh, uh, you know, resources. For example, there's the Harn book. Uh, there is Fife by, uh, and another book called Town by uh, an author named Lisa Steele. And uh, so they are people who have done the research. For you, and they have a much, I guess, for lack of a better term, hit rate than the uh, than actually diving into historical research. But th- there are some really, really good books. Um, it's, uh, it's a it's a big challenge. It's definitely a big challenge um, because, like like you said, the history books they're usually written because somebody's examining. A whole different set of questions than a game master is going to have. We're wondering what does the door look like at the inn, and who who's the boss yeah. of the of the town, and who you know who does he answer to? And we have like very ground level specific answers that we need. And a lot of times, they, the historians don't have to answer every one of those details. They're looking at other things, or they're looking at a list of you know of like like a a, a ship manifest or something to to, to find out about you know, the, the trade in the, you know, in a given region. And so it's, but, but one thing you can do is you can build to those things. You can, you can, it, rather than end up, because you can end up in the situation where you read a 200 page book for the one question that you have, and that can be incredibly frustrating. And so what I've learned to do is I've learned to go to the book and make sure that all that other information that I wasn't looking for somehow becomes relevant to, to what I'm doing. Um, so that, sure. you know, but go yeah, on, it looks like you other, have an example. 
Well, the the other book I rec- one recent book I read that recommended called History of the Ancient World, and it's part of a series. So it's a history of an evil world, and it's by a Susan Bauer, and she does a very good job of of outlining outlining history and make it more people oriented mm-hmm. than usual, uh, because she has a knack of you know like. For example, she talks about the legend of Gilgamesh and, you know, how much of it is really historical and stuff like that. But she draws in other sources to really paint Gil- Gilgamesh as like he she doesn't spend a whole lot because, like I said, there's not much of the source material. There's like six chapters in the legend. You know, it's the Gilgamesh legend is a six chapter book, basically. And uh, but uh she she used what what's known about other uh, you know Sumerian kings and stuff to paint him as, as if he was going to be a real king, and uh, and she and she then and then she she shows you how in parallel how what's happening in China and stuff. And it's a really good book if you're interested in getting a broad overview of history and what was happening when. Another thing I would recommend if you want that broad overview is just like historical atlases of the world where you can see. Like, you know, okay, this is the globe, and here's all the stuff that was happening in this date. Historical atlases are really a valuable tool that uh, you you can find traces of them online, but there's nothing quite like going and getting a full historical atlas. Oh, yeah. It's, it, I'm actually going to shift gears for one second, if it's okay yeah, with you of guys. of course. Of course. <laughs> and that is that, you know, I know we're talking about research and going in really deep into some details when it comes to, like, our world building. Um, I'll say this, I don't think one always always needs to go very detailed, and I'd like to just give some examples yeah. of that for a second. So, and again, I'm, I'm thinking sci-fi right now a little bit more than I am like fantasy gaming, but I kind of think that there are like four things that a person can quickly look at, in my opinion, when you're building a world that can change the viewpoint of, of, of the experience that people have. And, and in the sci-fi game, I think you can look at either a planet, a country, a city, or a culture, and make one change to how we're used to those things to create something brand new. So I I jokingly say, you land on a planet, this planet has a methane atmosphere, that now means that everyone on the planet needs to wear spacesuits, and you're only safe to breathe when you're inside a building or in a spacesuit. So that would be one example. If you're in a country, right, and and we live in America, or at least I do, if you end up in a place where no one has freedom of speech or maybe women are not allowed to walk around in public, but now your party has a woman in the group. And so now everyone's reacting to that in a very different way. So I would say that's a country level thing. And then city, I I joke about this, but um, where are things in your city, right? Is the city hall the center of town, which is pretty typical uh, where we are, but maybe it's the library. Or maybe it's the funeral parlor slash soylent green plant that is at the center of the city, right? <laughs> so that changes things a little bit. And then I also say, like, culture is one of those things that can change an atmosphere where you can world build with one simple change from where we have. And that might be, what if you land or, or, or if you are adventuring in, uh, in a place where colors are not boldly displayed, Right. So your group of adventurers comes to into town and they have red and blue and green on and everyone else is wearing gray. 
and suddenly they're attracting attention in a different way, right? And so sometimes when we're talking about world building, we don't have to do a ton of, of, of research, with, with all of which is valid, but sometimes making a change to the world that they're in, a very simple change, affects everything that happens in the rest of the game. What do you guys think about that? I think I think you're um, you want to definitely leave room for imagination and that kind of thought experimenting to go on. And I, I also think research is a very subjective thing. Like like Rob and and you and Adam and I might all have different bars that we're going to set for what we're striving for with our campaigns. And so it's really when you're doing the research, it's about whatever level you're trying to hit with that. Um, but mm -hmm. I but I think with the but you, again the the imagination element of it when i did when i did my fantasy setting i specifically thought in terms of two things i was thinking in terms of uh the the history the kind of historical stuff i wanted but i was also thinking about star trek and uh you know and shows like that and books like that like ring world where it's all kind of a thought experiment like you were just saying or what if this one thing were different or what if all the people you know and, and it's fantasy so you can add in other sorts of things what if there's a giant head that lives in the pond and it you know and and when the when the yeah. head's upset you know people don't get water and when it's happy they get you know like what what does that do to the local culture that's the kind of stuff that i i, I enjoy when i read science fiction or fantasy so i always try to bring those things to the to the table and i think i think you could you can really i i consider it like the star trek approach where you you take the culture and you change the thing and then you you know uh and you see it in doctor who too and you know it's 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 really uh um it's it's a really quick way to to come up with an interesting culture and it also is fun i i just i find it enjoyable uh as a as a game master to do that i think another thing too is that you know once you once players understand the genre or the kind of setting you're going for, there's a lot of work you don't need to do. Like, you know, when we're playing Ogre Gate, that's Wuxia. And if you say, okay, you guys go into an inn, go into an inn it's like I have a different picture in my mind if you're playing in Greyhawk. It's yeah. like I you don't need to sit there and explain to me the difference between this, you know, old Chinese inn and the your like European style and in Greyhawk, my brain does all of that. The game master, despite by setting the genre, a lot of work is done for the game master. Yeah, I. What I've given, I've given this advice be, uh, before in my blog is that you should harness the power of stereotype in in our common cultural heritage. Now, you know, most people view the Middle Ages isn't accurate, but you can. But if you're talking about a campaign in Greyhawk or another made-up fantasy world that's vaguely medieval, you can play up on the Mario England, uh, you know, stereotype that people have Middle Earth and do what Nick said, change one or two things to make it your setting. But that that, that has two advantages: less work for you, and it makes if the players see you playing into the stereotype then they can say yeah you know in mario england this is what we can do and not do and that that part of their uncertainty their uncertainty in that regard goes away uh i, I don't know how you guys felt playing my game but I, it seems like once you picked up on the fact how medieval my my uh uh setting was you were pretty much acting 
I see you you were using your knowledge of medieval history to to generate opportunities for role playing and stuff. And the other comment I want to make is when you have to choose between doing stuff, not the only thing that ever matters in any of this research, any of these world ta- world building stuff. Does it impact the behavior of an NPC that the players will interact with, whether it's a, 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 per, a sentient being or a monster? Yeah. But it only matters if the player interacts with it. Now, if you enjoy making historical maps, by all means, <laughs> make your historical map. But just realize you're just doing that for yourself, okay? It may inspire you to later, but ultimately it all has to tie back to you getting out your funny voice or, or your different mannerism or however you role play, but it all has to tie back to you role playing an NPC or monster in a specific situation where it doesn't have any meaning. The players will never see it otherwise. You, yep. you, That's something that was in my notes. I'm like, I agree completely. It's yeah, so you, important. I have tourism down. Like you can end up in the tourism situation where players come and they see the interesting thing, but there's not necessarily anything for them to, <laughs> it's just there. It's not, you know, or or like Rob was saying, it, they don't even know about it. It's over the hill, um, and so you you. I mean, I, I think there's a couple of things. So, some t- some of the stuff you make when you world build is not going to come up during the game just by accident because the players didn't walk through the door, so they never saw the room, or they never saw the uh, they never they never went to that village. Um, but what you want is something that if it does come up, that it that it's usable that it's uh you know so i i usually try to think like one of the questions i'll sometimes ask myself is uh, myself is is there an adventure hook present in this description of this place that i have or is there is there nothing there for them to like is there any way for me to use this material when the party gets there or am i just giving them an interesting description of a tree do you know what i mean and the and so i think and so i think you know it depends on how you think of you know, hooks, I tend to think of them kind of like raw, where it's a lot, mainly through the NPCs, where, you know, I have an NPC who wants something, or is in a situation, and is if the players connect with that, there's going to be something enjoyable that, 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 that arises from it, or at least the NPCs. Now, oh, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, sometimes history can impact, and impact, if history does impact, uh, NPC behavior, then it is useful work. If Faloria and Gilder hate each other because of past war and because Gilder took some of Faloria's territory and now the inhabitants of the two lands hate each other, that impacts the behavior of NPCs. So that is a historical detail that will get used someday in your campaign. No, and, th- and those kind of conflicts are very, very usable. They're very, they're very easy to sort of deploy in a, in a, you know, on the fly situation if you have that background. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I think that you definitely do want to, uh, you do want to think in terms of, you know, the, the function of all of these things. Um, and I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was going to say. It's also interesting, I, I really like what Rob is saying about how the whatever world building you're doing or what or cultural things that you're putting into place are reflected by the non-player characters and how they act in certain situations. And, and I'll go one step farther to that 
uh, to even a conversation that we had a little bit earlier, which was that that doesn't mean that everybody has the same opinion. So even within that culture, you will find people who are part of different sects or different political groups or different groups of people who have different viewpoints on things. And I think that can sometimes be played into a non-player character situation where you encounter someone and they have one certain viewpoint. You're like, oh, okay, cool. This is how the people here act. And then you find yourself in a different situation with a different sector group of people. I, that's something that can be played into a, a, a good world or a complex world if they're going to be somewhere for a while to realize that not everybody is maybe mad about the invasion from Gilder. Maybe there are some people who are supporting that, that were in that area, you know. So I'm just saying there's some interesting things that can be done with all of that. Yeah, and the thing, uh, it doesn't have to be very complex, too. So you, you establish a baseline for how the NPCs acted, say, in the Kingdom of Gilder, regardless of how it's just... You decide, you know, what are people Gilder like? So you find your baseline and just pick two or three, some, whatever you can keep in your head, you know, sliders in your head, and then just twist those sliders when, when you need to come up with an actual NPC, and you'll be surprised on how much variations you'll get out of just a handful of sliders. And, uh, yeah, no, so the... Um I know, and I think too, Rob. You always have this saying. I'm probably going to butcher it, but it's something like, eventually the players explore all the dungeons and they explore all the territory, and all that's left is the NPC. Like, like the the NPC. Oh, is yeah. Ultimately, the thing, and and that is definitely true. Like, you, you even in the most well maintained campaign setting where you're updating things regularly, eventually the NPCs always become the thing that you have to fall back on as. You know, this is, the, you know, the, the whatever conflicts are going on or whatever things are motivating them, that's kind of what is going to be the part of the chemical reaction for the players when they enter into the picture. Um, oh, go ahead. Yeah, the, the, the uh, our longest form running inter forms of entertainment are invariably uh, are like soap operas and stuff. You know, all and most of the soap operas for the past decades have been set in various suburban locations you know very something very relatable but people just watch them for years because they become invested in the characters and their inner relationships because fundamentally we're wired to be most interested in other people hmm. so when you look at a rule book you know you know even if you take the thickest you know dungeon crawl classics or 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 Hackmaster fifth edition rule book you're eventually going to experience every if you play it long enough you experience everything that at that rule has to offer that rule book has to offer if you're in a setting and you go you, you play in enough campaigns you'll see all the territories that you want to see in that setting so what's left the people because that's always going to change you know, if you keep track of, of, of the changes in your setting, you know, and even if your campaign never ventures beyond the village of, uh, well, Balderstone, the, the <laughs> coined, a, coined a name, but if it never, it never uh, varies from Balderstone, the people of the next campaign of Balderstone are going to be impacted what happened on the previous, so it's going to be different. And, you know, and the players might go, yeah, yeah, well, how's it different? You know, oh, wow, this happened. And, you know, they just get hooked. And I call that the soap opera effect. 
you if you're able to engage the soap opera effect, you can you can keep a campaign going on for years, maybe even decades, a few rare instances. I just thought of kind of a neat segue for that, and that was that uh, my group just played you know the soap opera campaign. My group just played a game on Friday, the day before the royal wedding, which took place at the royal wedding. So uh, this is a Doctor Who game. They time traveled to to uh, the wedding of Harry and Meghan Merkle, and uh, a, a nefarious plot was going on behind the scenes. So the day before the wedding, they solved the plot to make sure that the wedding would go okay, and of course the next day was the actual royal wedding, right? And so, you know, in terms of world building, being able to use the existing world and, and, and the advantage of a time travel game, right, is that we we knew exactly what was going to happen the next day, but like there was flexibility for us to like kind of change what was going on. Uh, and, and to me, I think that plays into a little bit of the comment that you were just making that kind of fits together like that. So, Sure. No, and I, I think that, and I think also the, the change is the important part too that uh, you were talking about, Rob, which is that people die, they have children, uh, the players do things to them that make them mad or, or make them happy. And so, you know, it's the, it's the long it's the long game, the sort of, you know, it's that character over time and the investment people have in it that can make it interesting. If it's an NPC who's like a, a, a antagonistic to the party, you know, it's it, it, it can it, it's the 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 how that relationship plays out over time is kind of where a lot of the fun comes in. And you need to you need to kind of keep track of, you know, what if, if the guy comes, if, if the character is introduced again after you know an absence you know what's been going on in the intervening period that sort of thing um i'm sorry i was going to make that comment that returning characters are some of the funnest things that that players respond to when they make friends or see someone or time passes uh re recurring characters are a great part of world building go ahead rob i'm sorry i didn't mean to cut you off did they interact with uh, harry and megan <laughs> Uh, they did indirectly. Uh, I uh, mean, they like one or two short things. Megan's father was not at the wedding. We knew that was going to be the case. So one of the characters actually like walked her from the car to the, to like the front of the church at which time, um, somebody else was going to like take her down the aisle. It turned out Prince Charles actually walked her down the aisle and some unknown rando dude walked her like kind of like up the stairs. We're like, that was our guy. Like, okay. okay. <laughs> um, as far as reoccurring uh, characters that are allied, that's a good point. I would recommend that you keep a little notepad and, and actually if you, it, it's altogether to easy to make your, NPCs antagonist to the players. Mm -hmm. So what I would do, if you feel that's your a problem, is keep a little notepad and say, you know, pro, you know, ally antagonist, and yeah. put a little tick mark about how you role play each NPC. You know, if, if if the players are a jerk to the NPCs, of course the NPCs going to turn out to be an antagonist. But if they're not, it's a neutral encounter. Well, just keep it keep it buried so that. Because the players will get paranoid and stop interacting with NPCs if every NPC yeah. is antagonistic but, in some way. 
that's where motivation is very important where you're talking about knowing like what the characters want and, uh, and all that and you know if like i had a guy in in, in my in, in the ogre campaign who's, who's bronze master adam who's always a villain you know he's, he's one of my big <laughs> villains but he wanted something that was somewhat in line with what the players wanted and also him and the one of the player characters there there was just chemistry between them in terms of the personalities so they they hit it off and they became friendly i think that uh you, you you want you you don't want to have every NPC be a villain. That is the that's a really bad habit to get into. Um, yeah, you, yeah. You want you want, you want to make good villains when you make them, but like you want to make a guy who could become a good villain, but maybe that maybe be a friend as well. You know, they don't. It doesn't. It doesn't have to be determined in advance what the relationship to the party is. All you need to know going in is this is what this person wants. And, but I would I would recommend so far to overplay the friendliness for like one or two. Yeah. Like maybe once every three, two or three sessions, make sure one NPC is overly friendly. And you helpful. Know, that they and helpful. You know they don't have, they don't have to shower the uh, player. Well, but they could be really helpful, like you know. Really, you know, if they did a player, your bard play a really good song. You can, you can have the room for the night half off or something like that. No, that's. I think that's really important. That's a. Um, you you can you can. If you went through life and everybody was mean to you and betrayed you, you know, you, you'd be very cagey. And and the same thing happens to player characters. Like they're they're they need a variety of different kinds of people. If if you if everybody's trying to betray them, you're never gonna have. A moment in your campaign where there's an actual betrayal that's like a surprise do you know what i mean well, and yeah uh, I, i'll add to that right we're talking about world building and so that is that in our real lives right we've we've made friends or in some cases we've made enemies and then over time sometimes some even some of our best friends have drifted out of our lives or we've had a dramatic situation which maybe some of our best friends have actually Become, I don't know if I want to use the word enemies, but maybe not so close Frenemies. friends. Or, Frenemies or is the word. We distance ourselves. So to me, like the element of world building is also evolving some of those characters, you know, and changing those relationships, um, you know, and, and, and building can be a lot of things, right? So you can have a romantic relationship with, with, with an NPC, or you can, you can get off on the wrong foot. And, and hate each other for years and all of a sudden that's the only person who's just in the town who's willing to fight at your side when something goes wrong and it's unexpected. So I think that element of world building to me means tracking some of those non-player characters like Rob was suggesting and then going farther than that and keeping a long-term track of them as well, right? And, and maybe evolving some of those relationships as in real life we move in and out of some of them. I would even add the most useful tool I developed for myself was a list of the living and the dead um, because <laughs> I was amazed at how often I was forgetting that it died it died 12 sessions ago you know died or you know and it just became it became you know maybe I just getting older my memory got worse so now I have a an ongoing list of the dead that uh, that I, I can refer to. You have a lot of multiple campaigns going at once too, so I can see it being doubly confusing. It's yeah. like, is this guy, this guy alive in this continuum yeah. or not? But, uh, but yeah, I think you know, kind of expanding the idea of making 
you know, friendly PCs just to connect people. It's like, I think overall that's part of, you want to have ways for, for players to connect with the world. You don't want them to be just, well, I mean, some, some campaign types you do, but you, you want to, you know, basically you want to think, are they just tourists passing through this world or do they have friendships and do they have like organizations they belong to or, or like a nation that they feel patriotism for or something you want to, anytime, anytime a player gives you any opportunity to connect something like that, you want to use it. Well, that's where institutions and things like that can become very useful. We have a lot of institutions in the real world, and it's easy to overlook mm -hmm. that when you're world building. And so to make mm -hmm. sure that you have the institutions that the players will be able to be part of or that they, they can, uh, the NPCs can belong to and they can uh, become, you know, not, not just like government, but like, you know, things like societies or guilds or a variety of whatever, you know, can add that sort of group element to the game. Because then they, you have, I, I think, Rob, you made this point earlier. If you have the like the power groups, then the char you you can sort of extract all the individual characters that you need from those. Like the uh, if you have if you have this nation that hates this nation, it's mm -hmm. easy to sort of generate PCs. And by the same token, if you have these feuding societies or these trade guilds that are all you know trying to outmaneuver each other, you know you can you can you can just sort of build the characters out of that. Well, yeah, and you gotta remember. An organization or a country or any, let's call them cultures, uh, they're always about, they're the sum of the individual members. So it's, it, it, again, if you have, say, like order of, in my campaign, an, an order of Mariadans, which is like a sort of like anti paladins and stuff, they are an order with. And they share ideal, but it's comprised of individuals. So, Mariah Baker, in, in all respects, although both of them are probably you would consider pretty, you know, you know, hardcore, uh, you know, a bit on the tyrannical side, a bit on the might and right side, but they're variations in between those two guys. They're not cookie cutters of each other. So yeah, you know, that's you just gotta keep that in mind. If you're able to the the very the very that your relations will now become that much more interesting to yeah. the players. Yeah, I, w I would agree with that. And that's that's something where where I think Adam, you kind of made this point. The accumulation of information can kind of help you with that sort yeah. of thing. You know, if you you, you, you if you, if you're having trouble coming up with with those variations, you can you can always take a look on the internet or into you know variety of sources. Um, what do you guys do for cosmology? Like, how do you? I, I know, I know, uh, uh, Nick, you you do Doctor Who a lot, so obviously you're sort of working with an existing cosmology. But that means you have to apply the the, the principles of it to the uh, you know to the campaign world, and that's in Doctor Who that's challenging. But do do you do cosmology, Rob, before you start world building, or after, or as you're doing it? Uh, it's, it's one of my initial steps because it, it influenced how my world, uh, if I were to make something from scratch, I would start with the color. I would, uh, the, the cosmology would be one of the initial steps. Now with the majestic waterlands, because it, it, it evolved, I, I did some, uh, backtracking and, uh, uh, 
Oh, what's that term? Where they where they change something in midstream oh, and Retcon, yeah, I did. I did a lot of retcons with the, the majestic uh, wireland. But once I did the retcon, you know, everything, you know, my cosmology to where it is now, that everything else flowed from that. But uh, it, it's it's the best to have. I mean, there's two ways you could do it. You could start small and build up the surrounding world, or you can start big and just quickly narrow down to the to the area that you need. And uh, but if I do the top-down approach, I start cosmology is early on. Yeah, I think cosmology is so basic. You can't really, I mean, it, it shapes so many things about your world and the institutions within it, and what people's goals are. It's like you know, if you if you've got a uncaring Lovecraftian world versus a law versus chaos world versus a good versus evil world, I mean, it's like those things shape so much of the feel of your world. If you haven't I, you, it's hard to do a whole lot before you've decided any of that. And I, I will add that, again, it all comes back to the NPCs. What, what you want to, you know, it's nice, you know, the, the, the problem with the old uh, deities, demigods, and heroes, and uh, uh, later deities, and uh, and then the later uh, uh, deities uh, and demigods, is that uh, they focus on uh, the gods as monster, where they should have been focused is on religion as culture, because the culture of the religion is what the players will see, because the culture influences the NPC's uh, behavior, because an NPC who follows Maitra is going to act different morally than an NPC who acts who follows Set. To give an example. Though there is something to be said for playing gods as characters in the setting too that can definitely have a uh uh an you know and if you like you can you can play the cosmology the same way that you play other npcs and groups and countries in your in your setting if you're if you're comfortable with it enough i think um that's something i i I often like to do that where uh you know having having a good handle on and it kind of gets to what you're saying rob like what like you know what does this guy like? What does Ramos think about X, Y, and Z? And when his followers do that, how is he going to react to them? Um, well, my question uh, would be: You can have campaigns where gods walk among us. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, um, oh man, I, I'm, I'm not doing good with names, but uh, uh, I know it's our. our Kevin Crawford published a, uh, a rule book to support that kind of play, where the where the default character is a demigod, and stuff like that. But then you have to ask the question: Is what is the role of religion in a world where gods might no you know, walk among us? Absolutely, no. That's very important, and 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 that's where it gets interesting, I think. Um, and, and 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 when you have gods walking among the people. How can you explain having different sects that view them differently if they're really there? You know, when I did it, I came up with an answer that worked for me. Everybody's going to probably answer that question differently. But it, it's 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 it, the but the point that I was trying to make is you can you can sort of do both. You can kind of you you can have the religious angle, but if the, if you have the gods that are active in the setting, knowing the god the same way that you know an NPC is really important. Um, well, you know, I'll, I'll take that even one step further. And the neat part about a fantasy role-playing game or a science fiction role-playing game, for that matter, 
is that one of the things that can happen in the world, even after you've figured out the cosmology and how everybody fits together, is you can have a shift take place that's unexpected, right? So there's, there's an eclipse that happens, and while gods are walking among everyone, those demigods all lose their powers, and now they're mortal people. And, and maybe all the mortal people get powers or something. So, like, there's an opportunity to shift the standard dynamic of what's going on. Adam was talking about how, you know, you can set up, you know, a, clearly a Lovecraftian game will feel different than a different world game. But you can also shift that. Nothing would be better than playing a Lovecraftian adventure in a super happy like, you know, Smurf Village setting, right? Where everybody's happy and it's all positive. And guess what? Maybe maybe Lovecraft is the good guy, or Cthulhu, I should say. Not Lovecraft, but like, you know, the great ones. There's a lot to be played with with world building, with doing some shifts like that that people might consider. No, I, I like that kind of stuff. In fact, I, that's, it's also good for, like, origin stories of things in the setting. Like, I had one where that's how magic came into the setting, was one of the gods died and people absorb the magical energy and so there was a point in the history where there weren't any wizards and then suddenly they appeared um so you know i think i think that can be uh and, and if you do that mid-campaign that could be you know you got to be careful though i remember they did something like that for forgotten realms in the 90s and uh it kind of threw people uh you know, it's like, tough yeah i mean when you're when you're professionally world building it's like they have to be careful because you're you're messing with a, with a thousand other people's yeah. campaigns when you're doing that you know and it's yeah it can you can really upset people if you rock the boat too much yeah i, I like how harn does it they they've been their present year is the year 720 and it's been 720 since 1981 so thank god for that <laughs> yeah i think i think when it comes to meta plot the the problem with meta plot is it becomes an excuse to sell books and so you mm -hmm. you do the thing where you release 220 page books or box sets i guess they don't do box sets anymore but you, you release a lot of content that people have to read and it becomes like a uh, a canon thing whereas if you if if, if there is going to be meta plot, the way that I would like to see it done is more optional as like a one page yearly update or something if you want to advance the timeline. But I, but I agree with you. I think I think when you're when you have a property like Harn that is just sort of, you know, it, it has the same starting point. It's a lot easier to build off of as a GM. Um, and also it's a lot easier for them to be consistent, too, I would imagine. You know, if they're if they're if they're using that as their baseline, they don't have to worry about is this the stuff I was talking about? Is this NPC dead now or is this, you know, is this nation even still a nation anymore? Um, yeah, well, it's easy. It's it's easy. You know, I mean, world building appeals to gamers, but there is actually an audience of people who like role playing books purely because they're really fascinated by world building. And it's easy for a game company to start catering to those people who just buy the books and are enjoying reading them which is there's nothing wrong with that but it's a it's a you you have to be aware of who your audience is when you're writing this stuff because what's when, what's what's good for one audience can be really bad for the other when dungeons oh, and dragons was in yeah. its when when dnd was in its second edition and they were releasing a number of gazetteer books i think that's mm -hmm. exactly what was appealing to some people adam Mm -hmm. was just the idea that they could read different settings and different worlds that they could decide to apply as they felt 
I think uh, good. So there, I believe there were a slew of those in the nineties. There were. No, there... I th- I think it was more complicated than that. I think it was because I was game. That was like my era as a GM. Like I was. I think you guys are. Made, you guys are largely a you know earlier edition crowd. And I. Well, this I, is when I worked in a game store yeah. era. For you guys, so um, I. Uh... But I was the target audience, is what I'm saying. And so I. Think, oh yeah. I think uh, what was going on is you had a lot of people that were just reading those books, and that was, and then they would buy the game books, and they would do that. But most of the people I knew were reading those books and playing the games. Um, but I think what did end up happening was either way, the profit motive is what was, was largely sure. dictating it. And so there was a lot of cool stuff. I will stuff. say, oh, I'll say the one thing, one thing you're missing out on is that the nineties were in all the eighties kids, that eighties D and D boom kids. That's when they all moved away from high school and lost their gaming groups. Okay. <laughs> and you had, so a lot of customers were people that had just kind of, they, they, they still loved gaming, but they, they hadn't got their adult lives together yeah. in a state where they were gaming again. And so those books were candy to them. But I do remember Ravenloft was the line I was familiar with. And I bought every book religiously when it came out, every box set. And mm-hmm. the one thing I do remember, is the, the original black box set, it was somewhat incomplete. It, it had its issues, but it always, to me, felt a lot more inspired and functional than a lot of the box sets that came after it where they would update the setting. They even made improvements. Like there were some geographic improvements they made because of the Grand Conjunction and all the, you know, the, they had all these events and metaplot stuff. But I th- I think that all they really needed was that one initial box set and then, you know, uh-huh. the adventures. Uh, uh, you know, but I don't know. I think, I think with, with uh, again, when, you're, when we're talking about it from a professional angle, you know, then it becomes different because obviously people are trying to make money and, you know, and they're, 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 like you said, they're affecting a thousand campaigns with every release. And that, that's a lot different than world building for just, you know, your, your group of seven friends that you're playing with. Yeah. Um, well, and they're I, crazy. I was going to say, I think that begs to remind everyone who's listening to this podcast, what I would consider the most important part about world building. And that is that, Regardless of what you build in your world, be consistent with it. And even if another quote-unquote official book comes out or there's another opportunity to do something, stick with what you have and what works for you and your campaign, right? Yeah. Um, I think that the, the fear was in the 90s when Azo's Gazetteers came out or expansion books and other things like that, that you were then expected to put that into your campaign. Or sometimes your players would insist well, a new book came out, well, now we have to add that. This is how this works. And I'll kind of go back to the whole, if when a game master is world building, the environment that people are in and the world and the cities and the culture, stick with what works for your group. Stick with what works for your campaign. You're not, in my opinion, ever obligated to change anything because there's a new product or something like that. And I think experienced players get that. But I think... Uh, Sometimes other people will argue over that. And there's arguments at the game table sometimes over that. But I, that's where I think a game master needs to kind of stick their guns and go, oh, this is the way it works for us. Yeah, I uh, I, I always make it a rule yeah, whenever, and, I'm, whenever and, I run a... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, but I, I make it a rule that whenever I'm running something that's that's published, I, that it, it is my setting. I'm, I'm taking inspiration from this setting. I might be using maps from it or NPCs or whatever, but it's... 
it, it's it's what I'm doing. You can't you can't counter me. Go, but in this novel, this thing happened. It's like no, it didn't happen because that's, it's not my game. That, that's that's <laughs> the worst. I mean, that, that that really bothers me when you when you have that at the table as a player or as a GM. Uh, I'm sorry, Rob. You were going to say something. Uh, actually, Adam said it for me. You know, if, if oh, you okay. use a published setting, you know, it gathered material that you want to gather, and you that at your base. Explain to your player. This is what I'm using. Anything that comes, I am not using, you know, unless I say otherwise, it, don't assume that's in play. And uh, and to go with what Nick's saying is, we even though in you know tabletop role playing can be stated, you know, pretty straightforward. You know, we sit around the ta- table, the players make character, the the dungeon master, the the game master makes a uh, setting, and you all pretend, you know, you pretend to be in the setting doing interesting things. And I, I adjudicate what happens and tell you what happens. How we think about that when it comes to the actual plaque uh, application is very different because we all think that subtly different. Yeah. How you keep in your head the fact that you know a village is comprised of a half a dozen different styles of peasant houses. How you store that in your and remember it, whether you have a table by your side that you won't pass on. Or actually, that you can actually hold it in your head and pull it out when you need it, or you just keep a book. You're, you're better off just reading it. Don't don't feel bad about any particular method. The only in here, learn all the techniques you can and pick the one that works for you and it works for your group and that's interesting and fun to play. That's in the end. We're we're doing a form of entertainment. But it has to be interesting and fun. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree with that. I think that's a, a that's a good place to end on. Unless does somebody have anything they want to add before we before we sign off? I think Rob just hit it out of the park. Actually, yeah, so, I think that's it. <laughs> all right, so. So, all right, so you know, uh, we'll be back on again. Uh, you know, uh, we don't know what the topic is yet, but I'm sure it'll be something uh, interesting and fun for all of us. And uh, also, I did want to mention that we had a special the other day on Cobra Kai that uh, me, Adam, mm. Lady Chowfung, and Kenny did. So people can check that out, and they can check out all the other normal shows that we have. And so, all right, we will let you go, and we'll talk to you later. Bye.